I'm excited today is uh, the penultimate sermon of our Christ, uh, Christmas at Covenant series. We'll finish tomorrow on Christmas Eve at 4.30 and 6 o'clock, but today we get to uh, preach something different. I have to mention before we go any further that today is December 23rd, which is a very important holiday in our culture. I don't know if you're aware of this. Uh, if you're not, you should be, but happy Festivus to all of you who are celebrating. would like to invite you. Uh, we were going to do feats of strength after the service. Um, that'll be at 1230 and then airing of grievances at one. Okay. So if you don't know what I'm talking about and you're a little confused, that's okay. Um, it's a, it's a Seinfeld thing. Um, I've always wanted to celebrate Festivus for real. I've always wanted to pull the Seinfeld, uh, the, the aluminum pole out of the crawl space and set it up and, and have the whole thing. I've never quite gotten to it. But one of these years, one of these years, we're going to do Festivus together. Okay. Next year's series. Happy Festivus. So today what we're going to talk about is, uh, actually, kind of goes along with the feats of strength and the airing of grievances. Today we're talking about the path to peace and how the path to peace is often far more rocky than we uh, assume it to be. Season of peace is Christmas. We have uh, peace on earth and mercy mild. There's a cooing baby in a manger. There's shepherds and magi and there's a lamb in the manger. And it's all so very sweet. Uh, and yet I don't know that that's the reality of the, the scene that we see in the scripture. I don't know that uh, our chestnuts roasting and gently falling snow quite matches what we see in the Bible. What we know to be true is that the path to peace is always rockier than it first seems. We know this also in our culture. Our uh, Christmas culture in America has uh, forever put this into film. So I don't know what your favorite Christmas movie is. Christmas Vacation. We've done this before. I want to just see again. I just need a refresher. Christmas Vacation. Who's, who, that's your favorite Christmas movie. Okay. The Enlightened Among You. Elf. Elf. Okay. Usually younger. Great. Great. Okay. Um, Home Alone. Okay, very good. Die Hard? <laughs> Die Hard is not a Christmas movie, okay? Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. Any more than, uh, I don't know, like Jurassic Park is, is a movie about you know, theme parks. Or I don't know, maybe it is. A, we're coming back to that. Okay, so Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. Um, don't, don't yell at me. But uh, some of you didn't get your movie mentioned because there's other movies out there with the one with your shoot your eye out and there's the other one about the, the three Christmas past and present. That's all there too. But here's the deal. Every time you watch a Christmas movie, you'll notice that the path to peace, even in our films, is rockier than you would first seem. So they all have to deal with their different issues in Christmas vacation. It's uh, Cousin Eddie and it's uh, the cat that explodes under the chair and there's all kinds of, of hijinks that happen. And on the way to the perfect peaceful moment, um, the Griswolds find quite a bit of conflict. Um, when you think of Elf, and he has to go through the Candy Cane Forest, and then he has to navigate the difficulties of city life in New York, and there's all this conflict on the way to his ultimate uh, redemption. And then you finally have Home Alone and, and the Wet Bandits and, and just dealing with all... Every time you do anything with Christmas, what, if you zoom out, you actually see that there's conflict everywhere. And the path to peace is always rockier than we first imagined. I think what we're going to see this morning as we look at the Scripture is that Mary and Joseph had their own such moment pretty early on in the life of Jesus. So in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, 22, uh, we'll put it up on the screen for you. It says this, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die 
before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. He's literally saying, I can die now, I've seen him. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles for the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother, Joseph and Mary, marveled about what was said about Jesus. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's not the Christmas uh, sentimentality that we get. Simeon holds the baby Jesus and goes, he's going to divide nations. He's going to unpack your thoughts for you. He's going to even pierce the soul of his mother. Jesus at this point is probably about 40 days old. We know this because Mary is going uh, to the temple for her ritual purification that comes with um, needing to be cleansed after childbirth. The Jewish custom, she would need to wait a certain number of weeks and a certain number of days, and then she goes into the temple, and there's a certain sacrifice she has to bring. And that's what the two doves or two pigeons are actually about. That's her sacrifice for cleansing. There's also there for Jesus' consecration, consecration, but you can see uh, the, the ritual purification law in Leviticus 12, if you want to go back and look there. But while they're there, Simeon says this stuff. He basically says Jesus is going to create chaos in people, cause division in nations, and pierce your soul. That, that the reconciliation of God and man that we sing about is going to come at a high cost. And I think it's the first time if you're Mary and Joseph and you're kind of like confused and, and marveling at, at all that's come about and there's angels and there's dreams and, and you're sort of making your way through the first 40 days of this, this might be like a Holy Spirit kid. Like they're, they're, imagine what they're thinking 40 days in. And then they're going to go, well, let's just start doing the things we're supposed to do. Let's consecrate him. Let's go get you cleansed. Let's do this whole thing. And they meet Simeon, who then puts words to what they might have been sensing, that there's something wholly greater going on here. In 1947, a guy by the name of Charles Beard uh, observed the foreign policy of the United States of America. I'm a history student. I studied mostly 20th century history when I went through college. And uh, the period that I studied was, was fraught with war. Charles Beard said the foreign policy of particularly Roosevelt and Truman could best be described as perpetual war for perpetual peace. The foreign policy of the United States was war so as to have peace. And if you look back at the history that he was living in, you kind of see where this comes from. In 1861, there's a civil war, and that goes on for a while. We have constant uh, fighting between uh, colonial forces and Native American forces, and the, the Indian Wars in the West went on for uh, decades. You have the Americans occupying any number of nations, and then World War I comes, and that's a big old thing, followed quickly, like within a generation by World War II. You think we're done at that point. The uh, atomic bomb has been dropped. Hundreds of thousands are dead, and then very quickly the Korean War starts, and that technically is actually still happening. And so what we, what we realize when we look at history is, is Beard was living in this area where there was like a hundred years straight of American war. And so he looks at the, the scene in front of him, and America, you have to remember at this time, is an incredibly peaceful place. The reason we got into World War II is we were attacked in Hawaii, which isn't even the continental United States. And so the United States is this safe place. It's the, the, the scenes from the 50s of kids riding bike in the front yard and everybody's having a great time. That's what it felt like. 
is that there was this incredible safety and we were, we were protected and, and this isolation that we felt on this continent actually created this really safe environment. But the reality behind the safety that we felt, behind the peace that was in America, was that for a hundred years we'd been fighting and fighting to repel all these different threats. We're not talking about just war theory. This has nothing to do with history. The point is, anytime we look at anything, whether it be movies or history or anywhere we look in our society, we see that peace is fought for. Someone always sacrifices. So it's not a new development. For Christmas, uh, Craig Jenkins uh, is our worship leader and very talented at that. And a few weeks ago, he revealed this uh, song. That it's this kind of moving song, and I ended up crying, and I felt bad for making fun of him for it, because he sent me the lyrics of the song, and there's this lyric about a sequoia tree. And I was like, who puts a lyric about a sequoia tree in a song about Jesus? And it says he's Calvary sequoia, and I hadn't heard the song, and my confession of my cynicism is that I read the thing, and I was like, Calvary sequoia, give me a break. This tree that's like indigenous to Northern California is supposed to be the tree that is growing somehow in the desert in the Middle East. Like, that doesn't make any sense. This is dumb. Somebody just wanted to rhyme something, and it's not even an easy word to rhyme. Sequoia? So for Christmas, uh, naturally, I wanted to really love my friend, and so I, I bought him a sequoia tree, um, which is not as easy to do as you think, because I looked into it, and to get one moved from California is like $70 million because they're really big. So I ended up looking online, and then they told me that it was not the right planting season, and so I had to go around all them, and so naturally I ended up at the place where I buy everything anyway, and I got a sequoia tree on Amazon. So they shipped it to me prime in two days, and it was great. And it's about, well, it's this big above the roots, but the roots are nice. Um, so I planted a sequoia tree, and I gave them a sequoia tree. And, and as we were reading about what do you do to grow your sequoia tree, because this is, it'll actually grow in this zone, so we're pretty sure about this if we don't kill it over the winter, um, is it actually needs cold. Like it, it needs opposition in order to foster growth. So not only when you plant the thing do you have to scar the ground, it requires the scarring of the ground to put in the seed, but then it says it, it, the seedling needs harsh conditions. That without them, it won't thrive. Without them, it won't really grow to be what it can be. It actually requires the opposition. And even in that, so I was thinking, even in the gifts we give, there's this underlying truth that peace is always fought for, that growth always comes at a cost, that there's always something being sacrificed. There's always an opposition being overcome in order for something to grow. Also realized this when I was putting Christmas lights in my house recently. I am a, a Christmas minimalist. Um, I only am allowed to do the outside of the house. So in the inside of the house, I bring the decorations up and my wife and the, the girls, they put everything everywhere. And then I take the empty bins back to the basement and I'm not to say a word. But outside, um, outside I have a single strand of old school bulbs framing the roof line of my house. And I keep them right where I keep them and I put them up on the ladder and I waited for a nice warm day. And I put the lights up a few weeks ago and I sat back and I had my Griswold moment where I had the extension cord and I looked and I sang joy to the world and I plugged it in and there was like every fourth light was was dim and there was no bulb. I looked up, I actually was like, well, that can't be. This must just be out. So, of course, I don't have any backup bulbs, so I don't really have a plan at this point. But I actually look up there and I get back on the ladder and it's not just that the bulb isn't on. These bulbs are smashed. There's like broken glass everywhere. I didn't even realize it. I had just put them up and I didn't even recognize that like a third of my bulbs were, were just broken glass. I figured it out. I went and, and made a, a play, and I got some backup lights from somewhere else, and I mixed and matched a little bit, and the neighbor's house is a little dimmer than it should be, but it's okay. And as I'm looking at, at my creation and, and the failure in the first moments, 
I, I will admit that I had a, a South African poet, a line from a South African poet go through my, my, my brain. And this will tell you a little bit of the melodrama that was happening when I'm, I'm looking at my Christmas lights. Is He writes this book, and it says, Every birth has its blood. And I looked at my lights, and I went, Oh, every birth has its blood. <laughs> Maybe a little much for the Christmas lights, but... The truth in it is real. And that line just stuck in my head the first time I read his poetry and I started understanding what he had come through with through apartheid and all these different things. I went, wow, that's something. Every birth has its blood. Every beautiful, miraculous thing has been fought for. That every uh, perfect, innocent, pure newborn that we hold, I get the pleasure of going to the hospital sometimes when you guys have babies and I get to go hold your baby. I get to be one of the first ones to smell their little baby heads and hold these perfect little things and they're innocent and they're pure. And even then... Mom's always sitting there recovering because it, it's not easy. That every birth has its, its strain and its trial. That every new thing comes from some other sacrifice. This is what's interesting about Mary's purification in the temple is, is even it requires blood. She's being cleansed from a birthing process. And it's a Jewish thing. And so she's getting the Jewish kind of blessing for going back into the temple and reentering the community. And it's a whole thing. And yet even that requires its own blood that she has to bring a sacrifice to the temple. And when you would sacrifice in the temple, they'd take a, a sword and they would slice the thing and, and split it in half and bleed it out. In Genesis 15, when we see the covenant made with, with Abraham, and there's the smoking fire pot that goes through this pathway to make this covenant with the sleeping Abraham. What's interesting, if you go back and read Genesis 15, they split the animals, and they, the way they would do it is they would set them on either side of a pathway, and, and the blood of the animals would run into the center. And then to make the covenant in that day and age, both members of the covenant had to walk through the blood path. The warm, the goat's blood and the pigeon blood, and, and you have to walk through it as if to say to the other, let this be me if I fail on my side of the covenant. Over and over, the covenant with God is made through blood, and every birth has its blood. And so as we go to Mary and we see these birds split, it's the same. So the question we begin to ask in the season of snowflakes and silent night is, what was the sacrifice that made it so? And I say that to say everybody knows the answer. Well, you're going to say Jesus eventually, so can we be done now? But we can't view Jesus' birth apart from Jesus' death. We can't view Jesus' birth apart from his death. We can't view the dawn of his life without, without making note of the dusk that fell over the world when he was on the cross. And we like to separate them. They're, they're separate seasons. I get to be somber at Good Friday, but I get to just let, let Christmas be sentimental, man. Don't ruin it. And here I am. I'm, I want to ruin it for you a little bit. I want to take the sentimentality out of it, and I want, I want to help us all put his birth in light of his death and realize that one goes with the other and that one presages the other and that every birth has its, its blood. Mary's purification required a sacrifice. Our purification, our forgiveness of sins required its own sacrifice. Simeon mentions the sword that will pierce Mary's soul, which in one sense is the anguish she feels as a mother watching her own son be crucified, which is unimaginable. But it's also the precursor to what will happen to each of us. Jesus, Simeon says, will open hearts. That Jesus comes to bring the sword that separates. We don't use swords much these days, so it's kind of like, it's, it's all a little bit weird. Uh, I'll say it this way. In, in the fall, I, I start, um, well, the, the light goes away 
this thing that happens here. I don't know what's going on. But someone takes the sun away sometime around November, and it just sort of goes away. And then the night comes earlier. And I like to grill. I like to cook in general. Sort of one of the things I get to do around my house a little bit. And I really like to grill. And I don't care that it's cold outside because it's a fire. And so I feel like it kind of evens out. And so I can still grill outside. But the problem is when you grill for dinner and it's dark outside and you don't have good outside lights, it's really hard to grill in the dark. And so I find myself, you know, it'll be sleeting and I'll be under a big coat and looking under my charcoal grill and I'll have my phone out with a little flashlight on and I'll be staring really closely and getting smoke in my eyes and trying to figure out, is it done or not? And if you're really good at it, you're supposed to be able to take the tongs or whatever you're using and you should touch the meat and you should be able to feel that it's medium rare and that's the perfect time to take it off. Good luck in the dark, okay? You try. What you should learn from this is you don't eat at my house if I'm grilling after November 15th because you never know what it's going to come out like. But what's true is in order to do this when I'm grilling in the dark, nine times out of ten, in the light I don't have to do anything. I get it perfect. I bring it in. When it's dark, I have to put it on the platter, bring it in, and cut it. I have to slice it open and actually see because I can get a great sear on something and bring it in and have it still be raw inside if I'm not careful because I just can't tell. And the same is true with us. If you, if you take a sword, Jesus' sword, and, and you start to open us up a little bit, you begin to see that any of us can live the, the proper life on the outside, but when you really look inside to the heart, sometimes there's something different there. It'll expose what's going on inside. I think salvation has a way of bringing its very own sobriety to us. As Christians, I'll say it this way, as Christians, we aren't saved because of our good works, right? Every other world religion, you do a certain number of things to earn your salvation. In Christianity, salvation is given because of Jesus' good works, and we accept that freely. The irony of salvation is that in Jesus, there is no shame and there is no sorrow. And yet, once we know Jesus, we look at our lives and can see shame and sorrow everywhere. Isn't it interesting that before you know Jesus, the shame and sorrow seem to kind of just be on the periphery. And then once you, once you follow Christ, you look at your life and you go, gosh, I've got a lot of stuff to fix. You ever been cleaning your house? Like the, the real deep clean, that spring clean? And you're progressively horrified by how dirty your house actually was? We did this pretty recently and, and we keep a clean house. My wife keeps an incredible house. And I'm really lucky because I'm, I'm one of those people that will... I'll put things where they look like they belong, but I don't actually clean anything. And she's really good at moving the things that I put where they look like they belong and cleaning behind them and making sure that we don't actually live in filth. And so we, we owe her that. And yet even then, stuff just gathers. And dust gathers. And, and, and so we have the Roomba. And you run the Roomba. And uh, recently we were cleaning. And at the end of the day, the Roomba was like, you're hitting the button to make it go to the next room. And it's like, please, just no more. I'm done. I'm out. The little light comes on and it just goes, I'm, I'm dead. Just leave me. Why? You don't actually know how dirty something is until you start cleaning it. Ever clean the inside of your windshield before you go on a road trip? And then you look at what's on there and you go, oh. And then you realize the only thing that's been on that windshield is your breath for the, like the last six months. And then you think, oh, that was gross. <laughs> Jesus exposes the dark and dusty corners to light. We don't always see what we like. When it, it, Going through your life with Jesus is like going through your house to clean it out for once. And you go, gosh, I didn't even realize how many areas of my life that he's now exposed to the light. And I have to go, wow, we've got to get that right. The sword that is in our lives through Christ is first seen in the garden. The first mention of the sword in the Bible is in Genesis 3.24, where this flaming sword is put into place to basically guard the path to eternal life. That as Adam and Eve had sinned their way out of the garden, 
that God installs a flaming sword at the, at the gate so that no one can enter again. The way back to God, the way that the Bible tells us, is that in sacrifice of the perfect lamb, that there will be an unblemished lamb that will take away the sins of the world. What it's saying is there will eventually be someone who takes that sword for us all. And the only way back into the garden is back through that sword, but we have to have someone worthy of taking the sword. I mentioned recently uh, as Easter this year that at Passover, one of the most mind-blowing things that was ever suggested to me about Scripture is that at the Passover meal, you can read the story of Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper, and they mention the wine and they mention the bread, but they never mention the lamb. And it was suggested by, by people much smarter than me that this was on purpose. That perhaps at the Last Supper, there was no lamb on the table. And so as the disciples got together for their annual meal that they all knew the right rituals and, and designed to, they looked at the table and they saw the wine and they saw the bread and they said, Jesus, where's the lamb? To which Jesus would have replied, here. And the first time I heard that suggested, it, it blew my mind, opened me up to a whole new reality that Jesus is, is a living, breathing arc of history. It's not a story. It's not a, a, a narrative that's nice. It's not a, a seasonal thing we come back to. It's this reality that invades our lives and is personal. And what I realized this last few weeks as I was looking at this story is that Last Supper was maybe the second time that the Lamb was conspicuously absent. What a beautiful picture we see in Luke 2 when Jesus is presented at the temple, and what irony that Mary is unable to afford a lamb. See, remember it says she brought doves or pigeons, that it wasn't her, her first choice potentially, but it was an allowance for the poor. If you look at Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, the Scripture told the Jews if they couldn't afford a lamb, that she, the mother, is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for burnt offering and the other for sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. So Mary goes to the temple as part of her ritual cleansing, and she's supposed to bring a lamb, but she can't afford one. She's too poor. And I thought, that's a picture for us, that we are Mary, that we're Mary walking up to God and saying, here's what I got. I'm too poor for my own salvation. I'm too poor for my own cleansing. I'm too poor for my own purification. I don't have it. I know I'm supposed to bring a lamb, but I, I don't have it. And in that moment, Mary walks in with the Christ child. And the beauty of the picture is that while she doesn't have it, she has a greater lamb. It wasn't that she had no lamb. It was that the lamb that she brought to the temple that day was there to be saving a whole greater thing than just her cleansing. And you and I, like Mary, walk up to God and we go, we, we don't have what we need. And they're waiting in the wings as Jesus saying, but I'm here. In that first moment, you realize Mary didn't own the lamb, the lamb owned her. And we lean into the Christmas season, we begin to get that for ourselves, that we don't own the lamb, the lamb owns us. The sword divided simple birds that day, but the path to our peace requires that Jesus bear the sword, that he sit under the sword of God's eternal justice in the garden, that every birth has its blood, that every new life has a cost, that peace is always fought for, that someone always sacrifices. And we go back to movies, you see it. You see it in the Wet Bandits and the Cousin Eddies. You see it in Seinfeld and the Feats of Strength and the Aryan of Grievances. There's always a conflict that has to be overcome. There's always something that, that is going to take the place, the sacrifice. And they're all just a dim, pitiful reflection of the story that God has created from the beginning of time, that there will be something greater that will take the pain for us. 
that the path of peace laid out by God and ultimately fulfilled by Jesus is not all silent nights and gentle snowflakes. That a king dropped into our poverty, into the mess of our lives, and invaded our own dung-filled existence. There might be no better better for, for the human heart than the manger. That this exposed, dirty, vulnerable, it's free to stay there tonight. And yet Jesus says, I can go and I can inhabit that. That I can give meaning to that. I can make that matter again. Reminds us we have a king who will stop at nothing to be with us. That Jesus bears the sword to give us life and then brings the sword to our life. And that's sort of the next step we take today when we consider that Jesus comes to help us see clearly into the corners of our lives. He comes to help us see clearly under the bed and behind the couch. And it's not always easy. But Simeon reminds us, in Simeon's story, he reminds us that Jesus arrives on earth to be king, not consultant. And that's a super hard thing. Because we all like self-help Jesus. We all like make my life a little better Jesus. We all like add a little bit of truth or a little bit of seasoning. The Jesus that helps my marriage or the Jesus that helps my kids or the Jesus that makes me feel better or gets rid of a little bit of my shame. And the self-help Jesus, the Jesus that's consultant, can really make our lives look good. But Jesus didn't come to be consultant. He came to be king. Matthew 10, 34, Jesus in his own words, he says, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And this has a whole other thing. We could preach on that for ten weeks. And yet what you see very clearly, Jesus didn't come to, to sing kumbaya and bring us all around the fire and have chestnuts. And That's not why he's here. He's here to divide. He's here to expose. He's here to show us reality and give us pure truth. Jesus arrives and offers us life and hope and grace and peace for us, the unworthy. He says, anyone who's not, you're not worthy, 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 I am worthy and I'll do it for you. And he mentions anyone who loves their mother, their father. What's more important than family in the holidays? The reminder to us that Jesus said, even those great things are idols that don't match me. That none of them compare to me, that none of them can save like me. It's an exchange that occurs. The exchange occurs after we know Christ that he offers us the right to exchange what we've had for what he offers. To lose your life, give up the old, lay down your idols, dethrone the previous king. That a sword will show up. It will slice through to the heart. Remind us that anyone can celebrate a season of snowflakes and sentimentality. But that as we all know, when we try to lean into that, there's not real peace there. Perfect peace is found for those who have accepted the exchange that Christ offers. That we, the lost and lonely, that we, the poor and powerless, that we, the wanderers in the desert, that we, those who are unworthy, we find greater hope in the life of Christ than even in our own life. He who attempts to find his life will lose it, but he who will give up his life will find it. And Christmas season is the beginning of, of that invitation to us.
that there's something greater happening, there's something bigger going on, that we are invited to give up our lives. Christmas is a celebration of old life passing away with the arrival of a glorious, beautiful new life in Jesus. And so when we sing Emmanuel, we sing about something greater and more beautiful than we ever could have imagined. We sing about something that will not only save us, but will show us what the rest of life should look like. We have Emmanuel. God with us, God for us. And thanks be to God, God in us. And so we lean into that in this season. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you astound me with the complexity and the beauty of truth. That no single page of your word stands alone, that uh, no part of your scripture isn't made more beautiful by the other. Lord, I pray that you would uh, grow that appreciation in us, that you would grow that desire in us to live in such a way so as to honor your sacrifice for us. God, thank you for Jesus in this season and the reminder, the invitation that we are to be made new, that you offer life and flourishing, that you also expose and invite us to reflect, to be circumspect, to be introspective. So Father, I pray that today as we look inwards, it would remind us that our value and our worth and our desire is outwards. It's you. Remind us that we were wanderers, we were lost, and we are now found. Father, thank you for this season, for a Savior, and for salvation that we know today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Continue.